If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab one from the pew in front of you. Luke chapter 5 is where we'll be reading today, and you will find Luke chapter 5 on page 860 of the Pew Bible. We've now come to the most important part of our week, where the one true living God will speak to his people through his word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I will read from verse 1 down to verse 11. Ask for the Lord's help as we work our way through this passage, and then we'll get to work a uh, little bit by little bit, working our way verse by verse through these verses. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, your people, and that you would enable us to understand your word. Lord, we admit that without your Holy Spirit's help, these are just words on a page, a holy book, not life-changing, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
and through faith. You would use these words to change us, to form us, to strip us of all that displeases you, and to form us into a people to bring glory and praise to the living God. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. On June 22nd, 1750, America's greatest theologian got fired from his church. The first Church of Christ in Northampton, Massachusetts, voted 230 to 23 to fire their pastor, Jonathan Edwards. For many reasons, but in part, most the biggest reason was that Edwards insisted that only Christians should take the Lord's Supper. Edwards might have retired after being fired from his church, but instead he would give the next seven years of his life, indeed the last seven years of his life, to serving as a missionary to a Native American tribe in nearby Stockbridge. And it was while preaching and teaching the Native Americans that Edwards was forced to reckon with the question of how it is that an illiterate people who knew nothing of the one true God, who knew nothing of creation or of the law of God or of the church or even of history, how could they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Edwards wondered, how might those who were brought up in heathenism come, using his words, to a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all, confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things, and of enduring the most exquisite and long-continued torments, and to trample the world underfoot and count all things as loss for Christ. What would bring them to such a conviction? Edwards would offer an answer. That this conviction the conviction that is sufficient to induce them to leave all for Christ could come in only one way. And that was by a sight of the divine glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes by an encounter with the living Christ. In an uncharacteristic break from Edward's 18th century prose, he writes... The gospel of the blessed God don't go abroad a-begging for its evidence, so much as some think. It has the highest and most proper evidence in itself. He means that the beauty of the glory of God in Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel is enough to induce a man, a woman, to sell all and follow Christ. And here's where Jonathan Edwards' point applies to the passage before us. What would induce a man, a young man, like Simon Peter, proprietor of a seemingly successful fishing business, 
to leave everything that he knows and follow Christ. And more to the point for us, what might induce you, dear Christian, to confidently and fearlessly run the venture of the loss of all things for the sake of following Christ? Well, here's an answer you find in the text before us. A sight of the divine glory of God in Jesus Christ, which transforms fruitless sinners into fruitful servants of God. A sight of the divine glory of God in Jesus Christ transforms fruitless sinners into fruitful servants of God. I trust that we'll see that as we work our way through this passage more slowly. First, we will see in verses 1 to 3, the Word of God on the water. The Word of God on the water. In verses 4 to 7, the blessing of obedience. We will see the blessing of obedience. And then finally, in verses 8 to 11, we will see the call to follow Christ. The call to follow Christ. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 a little bit closer. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The lake of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias because naming the same thing with several different names is fun. The lake of Gennesaret is truly a lake. But it's not like Echo Lake. This is a big lake. It's 13 miles long and it is 8 miles wide. And also, unlike Echo Lake, it's filled with fish. A crowd is pressing in on Jesus to hear him preach. Jesus is a preacher. I don't know if I've mentioned that or not in this series. Well, word gets out that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has been preaching and teaching throughout the region. People are hearing him. People are being healed by him. He's run off a few demons. And things are going really well in his ministry. There's lots of people coming to hear him speak. And so Luke writes, on one particular occasion, they're pressing in on him to hear the word of God. There's so many people, they're pressing in on him, and he's pressed up against the water. And this is what you call a good problem to have. Huge crowds pressing in to hear the word of God. Well, at the beginning of the message, I just have to wonder, dear Christian, how are you pressing in to hear the word of God? Do you press in like this crowd? I'm afraid many of us treat Bible reading as if it were a vitamin supplement, a good thing to have. My friend, the Bible is not a vitamin supplement to a healthy man. It is an antidote to a poisoned man. For Jesus himself said, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I wonder what it might look like in your life if you truly believe the Lord in that place. 
How might it change the way you press into God's Word if you truly believed that His Word is life? Now, of course, we don't have Jesus standing before us by a lake. But we have something better. We have God's very Word written down for us, accurately translated in a language we can read and understand. What if we believed that this book contained the words that give us life? Would we put Bible reading into our schedule each week? Or would we schedule our life around Bible reading every week? Would we spend less time looking at lesser things and more time looking at greater things? What does it look like to press in on God's Word? Well, it means, for one thing, pressing in into God's Word with others in community in a one-on-one Bible study, or in a Living Stones discipleship group, or in Sunday school. It looks like preparing yourself for church on the Lord's Day. It looks like allowing God's Word to settle on your heart and to then to speak of it with others. If you have young children, it looks like preparing them to receive God's Word on Sunday morning. Getting them to get them to bed early on a Saturday night, so they have plenty of energy on Sunday morning. Getting them a good breakfast on Sunday morning, so it's easier for their little bodies to sit and listen. Now this may get me into trouble, but pressing in to hear the word of God as a family means saying no to things that would keep you out of worship on the Lord's day. With so many pressing in on Jesus, he had to adjust his approach. And he looks over, and he sees two boats belonging to Simon's business. The fishermen were not in the boats anymore. They're washing their nets after having fished all night long, caught not much, but probably some mud and gunk. And they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus asks Simon if he can commandeer one of the boats and put it back on the water so that he can address the people from the boat. Now, why would Jesus do this? Well, for one reason, science. Because sound travels across water better than it travels across land. If Jesus were on the water teaching, his word would carry further, and therefore more people would hear the word of God. And Jesus knew this about science. Because, well, he made it that way. It is the word of God over the water. Now, he's sitting in a fishing boat, and this is these boats in these days were probably around 30 foot long or so, 8 foot wide. Back in 1986, a couple of fishermen in the Sea of Galilee found one of these boats sunk in the mud. Archaeologists dug it up, restored it. You can see it in a museum today if you want in Israel. Simon 
agrees to Jesus' request, and he offers one of his boats to Jesus. It is his business. It is his boat. It is his resource. And he offers the resources of his business to Jesus in order that the word of God might go forth to more and more people. Isn't that wonderful? May the Lord raise up many women in our day to do the very same thing, leveraging their own businesses and resources to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Young people, you have all heard me say this before. But I would like you to consider, as you're thinking about college and career, consider going into a field that can be easily leveraged for gospel work among the unreached. With today's global economy, there are plenty of options to work among the unreached peoples of the Middle East, of India, of Indochina. So instead of thinking, what job can I get that will give me a six-figure income in the U.S.? Think, what job can I get that would allow me to go to the Middle East or Indochina and serve the local church there? Now, certainly there was a blessing for Simon's willingness to give up his business resources for the Lord to preach his word on the water. But that was not the only blessing the Lord would offer to Simon that day. Let's keep reading verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But it's your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. So Jesus is done preaching. But he has another message. And this one is to Simon and to his business partners. He tells them to go out into the deep water and to let down their nets. Now, there would have been a number of reasons for Simon to object to Jesus' request. Not least of which, Jesus is the adopted son of a carpenter. Peter's a professional fisherman. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a fishing charter with professional Finnish fishermen. I've had the privilege a couple of times. Something I've noticed about professional fishermen. They love it when non-fishermen tell them how to catch fish. They just It's like their favorite thing. So Simon might have been like, look, I'm the professional fisherman here. I know you healed my mother-in-law, which is great. Thank you for that, by the way. You're a carpenter. Look, if I want a nightstand for my wife or some tips on joinery, I'm coming to you, but stay in your lane. I'm the fisherman. But he didn't. He didn't say that. And the reason Simon Peter might have objected to the Lord's request had to do with the time of day. He had fished all night. They had brought their boats to the shore and they cleaned their nets. 
And then Jesus took one of the boats and then he preached. And how long did he preach? Let's say a couple of hours. So maybe it's the middle of the day. The fishermen of the Middle East tended to fish at night when the water was cooler because more fish came to the surface. So Simon might have told Jesus, it's just not the right time. We're way past peak fishing hours. I mean, I fished all night and I'm tired. My guys are tired. I got to pay these guys by the hour. You're asking me to get the nets dirty again. He might have said that. But he didn't. To Simon's credit, he obeyed Jesus' word. Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is the creator of all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power, is in charge of all things that's going on in that boat. So we might be able to say that in the divine providence of God, Simon and his boys, they toiled all night without catching a single fish so that in the morning they wouldn't be cleaning fish. They wouldn't be selling fish in the market. They would be free to offer their empty boats to the Lord so that at the least likely time to catch fish, the Lord might fill both of their boats to reveal His glory to them. You see, we might be able to say that in the divine providence of God, Simon and his business partners toiled all night long taking nothing so that they would be free in the morning so that Jesus could take one of their boats and fill it with fish as a revelation of who he was to them. You see, Simon's master is also the master of those fish. He directed a miraculous number of those fish to be in that exact place at that exact time in order to be caught by Simon's net as a way to reveal himself to that man. And so, we might be able to say that in the divine providence of God, you, fellow Christian, might toil and labor and endure some unfruitful season of your life into which Jesus will come, to which you hand over that difficult season to Him, and He will provide for you as a revelation of His glory to you. I wonder how many of us feel Simon's words this morning. Master, we've toiled all night and taken nothing. Master, I've already shared the gospel with her. and She wouldn't listen. Master, we've already been through marriage counseling. It didn't work. Master, I've already forgiven him. And yet here we are again. 
Master, I already tried that Bible study and no one showed up. And might it be, dear ones, this season of difficulty, of uncertainty, of sorrow, is the exact time Jesus will reveal his sufficiency to you. Might it be that he is calling you to an act of faith and obedience in your life? To go against worldly wisdom. To go out into the deep at the wrong time of day and let down your net. And so can I encourage you to do as Simon and to say with him, at your word, I will. Share the gospel again. Start that Bible study back up again, no matter how many people come. Fight for your marriage. Trust the Lord. Because if the Lord is calling you to do something that makes perfect sense to you, you wouldn't need to trust Him at all, would you? Obedience is an act of faith. Obedience is what happens when you look at things this way and God says, no, this is the way. And you have to say, at your word, I will. You have to trust the Lord that he is good, that he knows better than you. Because if if the God you serve never contradicts you or opposes you, then you're not serving God at all, but yourself. And here's what Simon has to learn if he is to follow Jesus. That when Jesus doesn't seem to align with me, when obeying Jesus isn't convenient for me, then I must submit my will to His because He knows more than me. He knows what's best for me. We must not conform God's Word to our will. We must conform our will to God's Word. That when God's Word does not align with your ambitions or your desires, when obedience feels costly and inconvenient, friend, align yourself to Him. Every day of our lives, we must wake up and say, but at your word, I will. Here's what I want. Here's what your word says. At your word, I will. And when you do, there is a blessing. There is a blessing for obedience. For Simon, in this story, it's two boats filled to the brim with fish. So many that he has to call his boys over to help him land the fish. Through our obedience, as we leverage ourselves and our resources to see God's word preached through this church, God may be pleased to fill our nets with people hungry, pressing in to hear the word of God. 
To this we pray. People may turn up here hungry to hear the Word of God. People who don't look like we look. People who don't dress like we dress. People who don't act like we act. But people who are hungry for God's Word. And it would be messy work. And it would be demanding work. But it would be endless opportunities to serve and love and disciple. And it is not something that only pastors do. It is something that each of us does. On the surface, the blessing of Simon's obedience is two boats, so full of fish that they're about to sink. But as we're about to see, the real blessing is far, far greater. It's a life-changing encounter with the living God, a sight of divine glory. Let's keep reading verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, as soon as the fisherman Simon saw a sliver of the divine glory of God in Jesus Christ, he fell at Jesus' knees, crying out, depart from me, I am a sinner. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. And commissions him into his service. I asked Pastor Brent to read Isaiah chapter 6 this morning as the opening to our service today because there's a lot of similarities between what we read at the call to worship and the story that we're reading here. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah also has a sight of the divine glory of God. And it's interesting to see just how closely uh, related these two events are. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Creation revealing His glory. And when God speaks, the foundation shook. And the prophet cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in Isaiah's vision, something comes out of the presence of God and touches the prophet's lips, taking away his guilt and atoning for his sin. And Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Simon Peter and the prophet Isaiah react to a sight of the divine glory of God in the same way, falling before the Lord and confessing sin. Notice verse 5, Simon calls Jesus his master, but here in verse 8, he calls him Lord. Something fundamentally changed in Peter's understanding of this man. He had met Jesus 
before. He had heard Jesus teach before. He saw Jesus perform miracles before. But the moment the glory of God came out of Jesus and so near to him personally, Peter knew this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary teacher. This is no ordinary healer. This is the Lord, the Son of God, in my boat. And I want out. Depart from me. Friends, this is the first feeling all men have to whom the Lord reveals His glory. The glory of God exposes the grossness of our sin. The pure light of His beauty reveals the deep ugliness of our transgressions. No man, no woman can stand in the presence of searing holiness. Once Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus with torches and weapons. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And when the Lord replied, I am He, a sliver of His divine glory spilled out of Him and a band of war-hardened armored soldiers buckled at the knees and fell. Peter's response to Jesus is exactly right. He confesses his own unworthiness, his own sin. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now Jesus, as God, had every right not only to depart from Peter, but to destroy Peter altogether. But the Lord would display His glory to Simon Peter in another way. This display would be infinitely greater than a couple of boats full of fish. The Lord Jesus would not heed the fisherman's prayer. He would not depart. In the highest display of divine glory, the sinless one would say to the sinner, do not be afraid. Come with me. Peter had no idea at the time. But in just a few short years, Jesus would climb the hill of Calvary to be crucified in his place. The rejection Peter deserved from God, Jesus would suffer in his place. The shame of Peter's sin would be laid on Jesus. Now, Jesus would not forsake Peter in that boat because Jesus would be forsaken for Peter on the cross. Dear sinner, you may not be on a boat like Peter, but Jesus Christ has come to you just the same. And he is saying to you, as he said to Simon, do not be afraid. Come to me.
And from now on, I will make you something new. If you're not a Christian, it is not by accident that you are here. In the same way that Jesus orchestrated every event to put Peter in that boat at that time to get those fish, He has also ordered every event to put you in that seat on this day where you would hear these words. You are like Simon, a sinful man, a sinful woman. And though he has every right to turn from you and leave you in your sin, he has turned toward you. And today he is offering you mercy, forgiveness of your sin, and hope for a new life. Lay yourself at Jesus' feet as Simon did in that boat. Confess your sin. Turn to him today. Take one of those black Bibles home with you and finish reading the book of Luke. And come back next Sunday and press in to hear more of the word of God. To Simon, Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching men. Instead of casting your nets for fish, Simon, you will be casting nets for the souls of men and women. Having experienced a sight of the divine glory of God, Simon will never be the same. He has a new purpose. He will teach and preach and tell others about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And men and women from all over will press in to hear God's word through Peter. There is a from now on offer to everyone in this room. Church, when we lay ourselves at Jesus' feet and give our lives over to Him, He will offer you a new life, a new purpose for your life. Every morning you draw breath is another offer of from now on. Every time you blow it, every time you sin against God, every time you turn your back on Him, every time you commit that same indwelling sin, you turn to Him, you receive another from now on. Friend, if you're feeling the weight and shame of your own sin, never turn from to the Lord, turn to the Lord. And you will receive abundant mercy for whatever sin you've committed. You will hear Him say, from now on. But Master, I toiled all night. I did it again. From now on. Keep turning. Verse 11 says, Simon and his business partners, James and John, left everything and followed Jesus. And so back to our earlier question from Jonathan Edwards, what was it that brought them to, in Edwards' words, a conviction so clear and evidence so assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell everything and follow Jesus? It was a sight of His glory. Have you seen this glory? Have you been induced 
to sell everything and follow Jesus? I hope you have. Instead of living for yourself from now on, you have an opportunity to live for something far greater. To follow Jesus. And to help others follow Him. To His glory. Now does this mean that you have to leave behind home, cars, and business to follow Jesus? In the most basic sense, yes, it does. It does mean that you have to sell all and follow Him. Does it mean that you have to go to the nations, spend the rest of your life telling the unreached people about Jesus? Maybe. What it does mean is that everyone in here must, in order to follow Jesus, leverage all that they have for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that they have. My fellow Americans... What I'm describing to you, verse 11 is not radical Christianity. It's Christianity. It's normal Christianity. Every Christian must leave everything to follow Jesus. That's simply what it means to be a Christian. Your home, your cars, your savings, they don't belong to you. Not even your body belongs to you. 1 Corinthians 6 says it was bought with a price. It's meant to glorify God. So whatever you do for a living, the main goal of your life is to bring glory to God in the leveraging of your time and your talents and your treasure as a witness to the worth and the value of God the Son whose blood was spilled to pay for all your sins. That's your from now on. From now on, your life exists to serve this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In word, in work, so that sinners may see Him. So that, like you, they would fall at His feet. And like you, they would receive pardon for their sins. And like you, they would receive a new purpose in their life. From now on. To this we pray, to this end we give ourselves, to this end we work. And just so I'm clear, to this end we rest. To this end we play in order that we would have energy to leverage all for His beauty and His worth. This Verse 11 is normal Christianity. It's what it means to follow Jesus. Because he's worth it. Because he deserves it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing the glory of your son Jesus to us. Lord, He is infinitely precious and glorious beyond compare. 
and what merciful kindness you have shown to us today in revealing him to us. Your word has confronted us and we confess to you that we have been reluctant many times to say at your word, I will. That we, your people, have been guilty like the world of trying to conform your word to our will rather than our will to your word. Will you please forgive us? Will you forgive us for thinking that we know better than you as to what's right for us? And will you enable us to keep your word and to give our lives to you? And would you fill this church with men and women and children who are hungry to press in to hear the word of God? Teach us what it means to leave everything and follow you. Give us grace to do this. For Jesus is worth it. Amen. Well, if you are a Christian and having confessed your sin, you have now an assurance that God has given you pardon. We find that assurance. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where we read, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin.